ascending through cosmic spheres like vapor, and tracing constellations on what great paper were the heavens ordered, sketched, and folded. Into black origami we can only gaze at. A century seems an arm's breadth. An orbit feels like stillness. <laughs> the universe forges matter. Exploration wills us. <laughs> For those of you listening, Aaron just performed a riveting yeah. interpretive dance along with his poem. The problem is I got about halfway through, or maybe just mm -hmm. one or two lines through, and I realized... This is more difficult than I had imagined, like miming the lines as mm -hmm. I spoke them. So I apologize. And obviously I realize this is a podcast. Yeah. It's solely for your benefit. For my benefit. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. So thank you for that interpretive dance, that beautiful poem. It very nicely introduces what we're going to be talking about today, which is space. We're also going to be talking about greenwashing and tree rings. Yep. So stay tuned for that. Outer space, to be specific. Yeah. And I was inspired by... An unlikely source, Dante, the Divine Comedy, mm -hmm. the third part of which Paradiso takes place basically in space. If it's celestial in like sphere? the celestial spheres, that's why he's ascending through the spheres. That's why I uh, I opened with that. And then I was just kind of like, space is cool. It's so big. It's crazy how stars, from our perspective, are uh, maybe an arm's breadth away or a couple fingers, but really they are, you know, well they might be dead, but they're like. Very, very far apart. Yeah, space is crazy. And I was just thinking about the aesthetics of space travel. Mm -hmm. Because we've spoken before about how the really appealing aesthetics of marine biology or seafaring in general has kind of inspired in me this future goal of becoming a marine biologist. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite there yet with being an astronaut. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we watch, maybe if we keep watching Doctor Who, then I will, I'll reach there in a few weeks. But what do you think is so appealing about the aesthetics of space exploration to begin this episode alicia of solar scene the podcast designing the beautiful sustainable tactile future also do you think we should start every episode by saying that i don't see why not okay. it's a nice motto we worked yeah. hard on it and we it did. does lend a lot of information to what this podcast is about in a concise way mm -hmm. should we say we're your hosts aaron and alicia we're your hosts aaron and alicia and this is solo scene yeah i don't yeah, probably not. We'll just work it in. The thing is, I like when it's a bit more of just a conversation with mm. you and I. When I think about other people listening to this, if I dare to think about other people watching this, then internally I just start to weep. So mm. Yeah, and sometimes externally. Yeah. So just, just you and I here today. <laughs> We're going to talk about space as we do most days. And due to our Doctor Who era, yeah. it's been a bit more common. So the aesthetics of space, the reason it's so appealing is because it's at once ancient and mm. super futuristic. New stars are being forged. Mm -hmm. Robots. Yeah. But it's also you think about the different gods that the stars were named after or believed to be in the planets and everything. Right. And that's very ancient. And you might think perhaps at once we knew the planets better than we do today. Mm. And someday we'll know them as well as we used to. As primal beings. Yeah, I found this quote. I didn't write it down, but it was something like, because later on I want to talk about light pollution. Mm -hmm. Because that's like, I was preparing for the episode and then I was like, wait, light pollution? This is a brutal thing that we haven't talked about in Solar Scene. This is the episode to do it. But there was this quote that I saw online that said something like, the stars no longer govern our society the way they used to. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's really sad in all its in all the different interpretations. Like none of them are a good thing, really. Yeah. Um, speaking of like constellations and the shapes in the sky, what's your sign, Alicia? Gemini. What does that mean? I don't know. I know Kanye's a Gemini. That's about all I know. Why do you know so much about Kanye? Because we did a Kanye episode. That's true. That's true. Once upon um, a. I'm an moon. Aries. Yeah. Which means fiery, passionate, and high energy. Honestly? <laughs> I think that everybody would say that about themselves. Honestly, I think you're fiery, passionate, and energetic. But I was just kind of dropping those little hints because we want to do an episode after the nature semester that is about, about the hosts. Mm-hmm. So that's like a little teaser for people. Yeah, <laughs> teaser trailer. So the stars governing society, I don't think it needs to be purely religious no, the way no. it once was. Yeah. But definitely, you, as you were alluding to with the light pollution, it used to be follow the North Star. You'd be a bit more familiar with the constellations as a form of navigation. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they were your nightlight. Yeah. Or just even growing up in a more rural place, it was an activity of we're going to go look at the stars. That's true. But since we've lived in a city for a couple of years, it's like... We're going to look at the green haze. Yeah, there's a nice green haze over Montreal for anyone who lives here. You know the haze. It's from this tower that emits this beam of light that i once thought was the aurora borealis and almost cried i was so excited yeah, i once thought it was a ufo yeah but then we realized it's just a tower with this brutal green light but we haven't seen a star in like forever yeah kind of I mean, sad that's not really true but we don't see <laughs> we don't see very many stars yeah and also i think even if it's not the active um task of or endeavor of, I'm going to look at the stars, wow, look what I can spot. Mm-hmm. There's a certain life, there's a certain personality or humility that you get from living underneath them every day because, mm-hmm. I mean, we know because as we said, you, you, we used to live in a more rural place, so we've had this like experience. It makes me kind of sad that there are some people who are just born and raised in cities and so have never seen a night sky. Like that's very tragic. Mm-hmm. And I think even where we were, it wasn't the purest night sky ever, which it's is true. definitely on, on my bucket list mm-hmm. to see or just live there. But there's something about every night you see this like giant scope of things that puts things into perspective that might be a good like analogy for what we're kind of losing as a, as a society or as a species. There's this quote about light pollution. It was from a book called Our Vanishing Night, written by Verilyn Klinkenborg. And it says, in most cities, the sky looks as though it has been emptied of stars, leaving behind a vacant haze that mirrors our fear of the dark and resembles the urban glow of dystopian science fiction. Mm-hmm. I was going to just read it and pretend like it was me talking. Oh, yeah. Because I want to be as poetic as that. But yeah, that's how I feel. And th- there's a lot of statistics about what light pollution does, um, potential impacts that it has on different species, not just humans, and obviously to our like sleep rhythms. Mm-hmm. and also ways to stop it. But I just found this this one fact, this one estimate, which was that 30% of light from streetlights is just projected almost directly upwards. Mm. So it's like in terms of the energy and money wasted on this, like even that is reason alone to think about, you know, maybe we could fix this, even if you just disregard the, the stunning beauty of the, the nighttime vistas. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah, even last night, I woke up in the middle of the night and was slightly annoyed. I was like, why is it just daylight in here? Yeah. But it was like 1 a.m. from all the street lights. And it's not every night, but sometimes, especially with all the snow, it really projects inward through the window slits. 
I had a list of pros and cons of space exploration because what spurred this question was me listening to the Economist podcast on the private space race, which I feel like everyone knows peripherally that it's happening. Yeah. There's SpaceX and then therefore there must be other competitors happening. But I didn't realize to what extent we have basically entered the age of commercial space exploration travel. And it's kind of crazy. Made me physically sick listening to, to be honest. Okay. Because there was a person on there talking about how Nokia, how do you pronounce that phone brand? Sure. They are setting up, or planning to, on the far side of the moon, a sort of 3G, I guess it's not 3G, whatever G, like a kind of data situation. So it's like, oh, they can sell their data plans to spaceships. Okay. And then it's also talking about a bunch of other commercial opportunities. Just made me sick, to be honest. Oh, right. Why did it make you sick? Because. Is it because space is such a pure virgin wilderness? You know, in line with the nature semester, that's why we wouldn't talk about it, because it's like it's like the forested continent before it was deforested. Is that Honestly, what it's like? Yeah. Okay. It just feels so wrong. It's like we should have learned from the past of like or just like exploiting natural, untouched areas, but we just haven't learned the lesson. Hmm. And instead of the slow progress, maybe it took two hundred, three hundred years to kind of get to the to the late stage capitalism on the moon. The moon doesn't even get the early stage capitalism. It just gets late stage. It just gets billboards and yeah, cell towers. Exactly. Okay. And it was very sad to me. And this is why I wanted to list of pros, cons, and then the Solacene version of space exploration. So there are pros, which I think I support space exploration in theory. It's great for the imagination, for creativity. And as we were discussing, it's a good alternative to kind of the AI metaverse investments of talent and money mm. because at least space is real yeah. at least in theory it could lead to some kind of cool new discoveries right and a couple other pros are that it's a frontier for the imagination and something for people to strive for perhaps space the space. final frontier exactly i think that's from star trek right i think and the cons are that unethical use of resources okay given that there is still hunger mm -hmm. poverty climate change war the likes and it's also just expanding resource extraction so this is another reason why this podcast made me rage is because the biggest pros they were talking about were well we could get oil from the moon we could get water from the moon we could get Perhaps there's some untapped resources. Perhaps it could be a stopping point for explorations to Mars or whatever. And it's just like, if that's what we're thinking of, going to the moon just to take, that's a con. What, what do you think we should go to the moon for? Fun, okay. perhaps. But the thing is, it would have to be zero environmental impact. On the moon? On everything. Okay. Because right now, every spaceship that... or whatever rocket of thing goes up, just bursts a hole through the ozone layer, which we've been working so hard to repair. Okay. It also just, because it's so hard to get things back to Earth, for the most part, a lot of things that are launched into space are just floating around the atmosphere. Mm. So we've just polluted the sky. We've polluted space already. It's very densely packed with space garbage. And SpaceX, I think they've developed a kind of 
reusable rocket. And it does greatly reduce the cost of space exploration and the resources, but it's still like, it shouldn't be the priority right now. Okay. And it's also just an escapist mindset that I don't think is great. Sure. We shouldn't be setting our sights to the moon. We should be setting our sights to uh, a habitable planet. And it was talking about like, oh, it'll be good for having colonies on the moon and when there's eventually colonies on Mars and so on. But I think that should be the goal for like 300 years in the future. Hmm. It shouldn't be the goal for like 100 years. A couple other things is that, yeah, it's just really wasteful. Like we're just exporting materials. We're already having a shortage and issue with sourcing the materials needed for batteries, for like solar panels and for renewable energy things. Like you need batteries. Yep. And so we shouldn't be sending all those just into space kind of willy-nilly. And finally... I saw a really moving quote from a person who was defending space exploration. And it said, it's the, (laughs) it was opposing people like me who think we should not be going to the moon yet or shouldn't be going to space. And he said, it's the kind of thinking that would have kept Christopher Columbus on Europe. It was just like, that was just a funny quote to me because it's like, obviously Christopher Columbus going to North America was quite a, disastrous thing for the planet and dare i say for society (laughs) (laughs) wow okay like that's obviously extreme needs a lot of unpacking and air quotes yeah but i was just like it was just a funny quote to me because i was like maybe i mean i brought along almost the exact same quote like to play (laughs) devil's advocate because i knew we'd kind of disagree on this yeah so the exact question i'll just like my points actually kind of correspond to yours nicely in a somewhat agreeing somewhat disagreeing way The exact question that we had today was, what's the point of space exploration? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to quote the immortal words of JFK, which is, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Mm -hmm. And he obviously said that talking about going to the moon. But I think in general, it's it's an ethos Mm -hmm. that is, it sums up some of the best of, in my opinion, like the human spirit, which is striving. There's a there's a painting that I think we referenced in the most recent zine, the nature zine. Shout out to the nature zine if you want to buy that and read a little physical manifestation of the Solocene podcast. You can click the link in the description. And there's also two other zines that you can you can order, um, which was by I think a German painter called Caspar David Friedrich, which is a man on the mountain like overlooking the the environment, surveying. And I just think that's like. I think space exploration is good. Yeah, I mean, pictures of Earth from the moon are what sparked Earth Day in the 70s for the first time. Mm. Like, it did bring about a lot of positive, not ethical, but... But your main your main concern things. seems to be with the sustainability of it. The sustainability because of it. Because we have the tactility. Mm-hmm. We have the beauty. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. It's not especially sustainable. And I had this kind of... Um, this theory that in effectively a post-scarcity society, which we are, a lot of us are already at, or we will very nearly be at in the coming decades, meaning most people in the developed world don't worry about or don't want for almost anything. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit last week about the dangers of like AI and deep fakes and just the metaverse, and we don't like the way this is going. And I had this thought that in such a society where the world is explored and there's a general kind of boredom or malaise or nihilism that creeps in, the options are either 
we go out, like to space, i.e. we explore or up, or we go in, i.e. to the Wally or Matrix society where it's like, I'm just going to slap on my headset and explore space like this or go to Peru like this. And obviously we prefer the former because yeah. it's it's the real world. But I understand your point about sustainability. That's obviously that's obviously a concern. I don't think like I don't have concerns about extracting from the moon just because it's like nothing lives there. So I say we should take from the moon what we can it's get. The, it's but the I understand moral, like it's the mindset. The mindset of going to there. Yeah, I, I get that. Like going just as this machine that takes rather than maybe with the wonder of exploration in mind. Like mm-hmm. I understand that for sure. Like I think in the solar scene there will definitely be space exploration. The solar scene is obviously a post-climate change, post-bad times, basically. Yeah. Utopia that we imagine. So it's like space travel then would be fine. Like there would just be enough for everyone on the planet. Mm-hmm. And it'd be cool. Maybe you go shoot a film on the moon. There's maybe space tourism. It's done in a way that doesn't punch holes in the ozone somehow. Yeah. I just think it's like, it's the point of the species. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's fine. And I don't think it's ethically wrong in theory. I'm not especially a utilitarian person, but when it comes to space travel, I'm slightly utilitarian at the moment because I'm like, what has it brought us? There's always in the defense of space travel, these lists of things that has brought us. And it's like, we definitely could have just figured out how to do these things without leaving the atmosphere. Right. But they, but they did do those things. Yeah. Which is like, that's good. And I get your point about, the money should be used elsewhere effectively. Like, that's always the argument. But I just think, again, playing devil's advocate, like, that has always been the case in history, that there's always a more humane use form of money. Yeah, and I also but, think... But there are multiple ways, I think, to raise a society. Mm-hmm. Like, you can either donate to a charity or you can start a podcast talking about something because you think that'll help. Yeah. Or it's like you could start a charity... Or you could build a rocket because you think this will help and this will inspire. Like mm-hmm. I just think that it's not so black and white a thing as you're either giving or you're taking in terms of how people use it. And of course, like it would be, I think in the solo scene, it's nicer if it's a public endeavor, like if it's mm-hmm. NASA or whatever. Like I think that's a that's a cooler thing when then that way everyone kind of feels like they're contributing and it doesn't yeah. feel like it's just a, a rich person's play thing, which maybe is a lot of people's concern now. It's like mm-hmm. it just seems like a selfish thing. Yeah. But I don't know. I just. Um, and again, you were talking about like some people want to own the moon or like people claiming parts of the moon or different asteroids. Mm-hmm. Or I saw this thing. It was like some company in China wants to um, launch basically an artificial moon that would be like a light source. Um, like there's there's a lot of like dark um, and yeah dystopian ideas like that. But I think fundamentally it's just, it's neat. And I think to answer the question of like, what's the point? It's kind of, that's kind of, it's the same answer to what's the point of life or like what's the point of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to be like depressing and oh, nothing, you know, it's all pointless and people can be like that. But yeah, I just think if there's a mountain, we should climb it. Yeah. I just don't think our political theory, our moral development or our, dare I say, like understanding of the human body or like mind I definitely think, yeah, it's always like, well, why do we have movies then? Why do we have any kind of art or any kind of solely mental endeavors or solely aesthetic endeavors? And I appreciate that. And I think when it comes to, there's kind of a line perhaps in my mind between 
leaving the atmosphere. I don't know why it's so strong in my mind, but at the moment, I just think our brains and our understanding of the human brain is not deep enough. Like we should be going in inward that way, like to try yes. and research how our minds work. Yeah. And I think our understanding of politics, I think we need some more philosophers. We need a few more Plato's before we can go to the moon. But I just feel like both can happen. And I also yeah. think that space, like exploration just helps like that. Mm-hmm. I had this, like the, the ways I listed that is the point of living is to be, to explore, to expand and to learn. Mm-hmm. Like I think it teaches you and it's kind of like, this is a bit of a weird analogy, but when people talk about couples having babies, you know, or getting pregnant, and they always say, like, we're not ready. And someone says, no one ever is. Mm-hmm. You know, people always say that. I think it's like that, but for society, it's like, but we're not ready to go to America. It's like, because as you said, Europe might have not been great or whatever. But it's like going to America subsequently, like, it helps quite a bit. It yeah. does quite, it does some cool things. And I think space, I mean, it's not just finding new planets, but there might be, like, if there are precious metals, you know, the, the metals that people are, like, mining, you know, in an unsustainable way to to um, to source for electronics, mm-hmm. like, that would be a good thing. Or if there's new species, imagine finding aliens. Yeah, That cool. would be crazy. Imagine finding aliens. Or, okay. like, a new element. <laughs> if you found a new element, what would you call it? Solacenium. Yeah, there you go. Solacase. Solacase? Yeah. Okay. Okay, two things. Right. One, there's definitely enough people and money in the planet to solve all the problems. That's what, I'm th- that's what I mean. And it's like what we were, you were saying with the podcast and so-and-so. It's like, yeah, you don't have to do everything. People can kind of divide and conquer. And I think that's totally true. But I also think if society was advanced enough to be able to go to space, like that I would think it would be ethical, I think society would be a bit more self-aware. Like in Herland, that book about the female utopia kind of isolated community community that had developed along like at the same time as the rest of the world and it was kind of set in the real world except for this one little area. Mm -hmm. But the people of Herland were like, oh, maybe we're ready to go and explore the rest of the universe or the rest of the world. Like they always could have. Right. But they had the self-awareness to be like, no, we need to not just have our own people taken care of, but have our mindset right. But I feel like if you go, if you kind of jump the gun and go like Christopher Columbus or like us to space, it's like, I don't think our mindset is right. It's a bit too... You think they're pulling the cart before the horse or whatever they say. Yeah. But I just feel like that in the long run, that works too, is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Everything will work. Yeah, everything works. This is where where the podcast gets a bit rocky because we're kind of talking about, and the the second question today, we're also talking about it like a transitional thing Mm -hmm. because we're talking about space travel in the era of Nestle and AI and and sustainability. Mm -hmm. But we're also trying to kind of, at the same time, design what it could be. What it could be in the solo scene where everything's solved. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, that's a little bit confusing. But with regards to the aesthetics... Remember when the NASA logo got so big? Mm-hmm. You have the socks. Don't deny it. I do have NASA socks. It's true. Why do you think that was the case? Well, it was kind of the 80s yeah. becoming a thing again. Right. And so with the 80s comes space exploration and so on. And yeah, we haven't put a man on the moon in like, what, 15, 20 yeah. years? So it's like, it's kind of cool. It's a cool logo. Yeah. It is. And I'm not anti-NASA. So was seen ex-NASA when? Mm. Ooh. 
But the it's the, rocket. the commercialization. We could buy the moon. We can't buy the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying all the things opposite to what you think. Yeah. Um, we could buy that cell tower. Cool. Yeah, they um, they're ineffective with their use of money and use of resources, and that's why commercialization to an extent is good, because if a, if it's a corporation, they have a bit like there's... They owe stuff to the stakeholders, mm-hmm. and they have all those like checks and balances of like a corporation versus a government. Yep. And on this podcast, I did listen talk a bit about something that I thought was cool about how corporations are more effective than government, and that's low key what we're thinking with Solacene is like trying to kind of take your own route is perhaps more effective at enacting change. And I talked about that in a kind of cool way about space travel, government versus private, but I still think. Just not ideal. I had a cu- another two benefits about space travel. Mm-hmm. And one is that it gives even more of an appreciation for our planet and the nature that we have because of how desolate space is. Mm-hmm. Like when people talk about terraforming Mars or finding water on the moon, I think they do it in in a very hopeful way. But also it's like it's hard to overestimate how like unlivable every other planet that we've ever found within reach is. Mm-hmm. Have you seen The Martian? I have seen The Martian. He, that guy goes through... Through it. Goes through the ringer. It's <laughs> pretty like that. Um, and that's just one person. Yeah. So I think that would... Like when you go out there and you just see like, oh, we're pretty far from everything and this is going to take a long time, then it would it gives that more appreciation for... Like you come down here, there's an apple tree. No apple trees on the moon. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that I feel like society needs a narrative of some kind of growth or expansion to feel happy, healthy, useful, and mm-hmm. like there's a purpose. It might be religion, like that was, you know, so often the the domineering force that kind of did that. But we live in kind of a secular society now. I'm not sure about the solar scene. Maybe we'll save that for a different episode. And I think especially coupled with the degrowth of the solar scene, which as we talked about a lot during that semester, can be perceived as a stagnation, even though it really isn't, because mm-hmm. we are still improving in a lot of ways. I feel like having that very overt, almost superficial, like we are literally going somewhere that we haven't gone before. Like mm-hmm. I think that's that's very like that's something that people would feel a little bit better about putting their tax into, for yeah, instance. That's like that's something that makes people feel like this um, species and the society is not a lost cause, which mm-hmm. which I feel can can infect a lot of, especially young people today, in a negative way, obviously. The last thing about space that I wanted to talk about was antimatter, because this has always fascinated me. I wanted to also talk about black holes, but it would have gone a bit too sci-fi. But antimatter is like, it sounds sci-fi, but it's just real. So it is consisting of antiparticles, obviously. Do you know any of them? No. Well, in like matter, we have protons, neutrons, electrons. So what do you think are the anti-versions? Is it just anti-proton, anti-neutron, anti-electron? Yes, but the anti-electron is called the positron. Positron. And antimatter is used in Star Trek as a fuel. Mm -hmm. It's what enables their crazy like speed of light travel. And I think, this is my belief, not speaking scientifically, (laughs) that it is probably the way. Fair enough. Antimatter has not really been like researched or explored much because it's so volatile a thing. It basically reacts with matter whenever it comes into contact. And I think the word that Wikipedia used was annihilates. 
<laughs> so it's like there's a big there's a big uh, release of photons and it's a big energy potential mm. untapped energy source is what I'm saying. So watch that space. <laughs> Not sure if you'll be watching it in our lifetime, but antimatter, I just think it's it's very cool. Yeah. And we do use it already. Um, scientists have been able to produce like very, very, very tiny amounts of it mm-hmm. through like lasers and particle accelerators and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think positrons are used in CAT scans. Speaking of CAT scans, or speaking of cats, the organisms are weak this week. It's the pine, the Great Basin bristlecone pine tree, Pinus longeva. This is Alicia's organism, but I'm narrating for her. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. So this is the oldest living tree in the world, the species that lives the longest of the trees and has the current existing long tree. So the current <laughs> <laughs> um, in the nineties, the long the actual longest was accidentally cut down. Oh yeah, that's what inspired Fern Gully. Yeah, but there's currently one that is about five thousand and twenty three years old. The man who cored the tree to determine how old it was died in twenty. When did he die? Hmm. We don't need to know that, do we? We do. <laughs> when did he die? What was the day? He died on, I don't, I don't know. He died in like 2013, 2015, that time. Okay. When things went wrong, as you would say. <laughs> um, and he took the, took the core with him and the location of the tree. What do you mean he took it with him? To It was lost. Heaven. Yeah, like, <laughs> to his grave. So it's funny because he wouldn't tell anyone where the tree was. <laughs> what? We know it's in California. Wait, so they don't actually know where this, this pine tree Apparently, is? Apparently there's... Some people in the government who know where it is. But they don't want to tell anybody. Because they don't want anyone to like Hack protest it by it or whatever. Like it's yeah. they wanted to just live in peace. Anyway, so he knew the location and it's the oldest living tree. It's five thousand and sixty two years old. And these trees grow to be five to fifteen meters high, two point five to three point six meters around. They have bright orange and yellow bark, but usually because they're so old. There's only kind of like one strip of living cambium kind of alive in them. Okay. So it's like there'll be like a couple living branches and like one living strip. So a lot of the the workings of the tree are dead. Um, so they look a bit more brown when you see them in real life. They regenerate very quickly. Like their uh, primary organisms, like if there's a fire, these guys will like spring up really quickly they're very resistant at one like as a species on a genetic level but they're also very susceptible to any kind of insect infestations bacterial infestations because they're so so old mm. where are they found <laughs> they're found in utah in california and in nevada and they live often in high elevations and it's kind of funny they make forests and air quotes but there's like a few meters in between them so it's like if you see a forest of them it looks kind of like a grove of some type because they're so spaced out but that's why they're so good for like if there's a fire they come in and they grow so they are fixing nutrients in the soil but they also leave a lot of space they only cover about five to fifteen percent of the canopy so like species on the ground can also grow Mm. and what Um, do they eat they eat light and water and so on i was trying to trick you yeah, uh, their leaves stay green for up to 45 years. Well, they're not leaves. They're, they're needles. 
but a needle will like stay for like five, ten years and then fall and then like regrow. But these ones, yeah, are up to 45 years, which is kind of cool. They were red listed in 1998, but stabilized by 2011. So pretty cool. I like these trees. And the reason I picked these trees is because I wanted to talk about tree rings. Right. It's a nature semester. Yeah. And I remembered we were in England at the Natural History Museum. And there was a picture of you by like the this huge. Of me? Yeah. Was it like fetus me? Young, young yeah. Aaron. Of mm. you by this really big cross section of a tree at the Natural History Museum. And I was remembering that picture and remembering how crazy it is just to see like thousands of years of history laid out before your eyes. And tree rings are crazy because they're not just rings. They can tell you information about (laughs) the environmental conditions, if there were different infestations, fires, and so on. And they're just so neat. Because of tree rings, we basically know the last 20,000 years of weather because of rings. And I love them. They form by in the spring. Vascular tissue is formed. And so in the spring, because it's like soaking up all the water, the tissue is a bit wider, like the the little straws that they sip the water up to the leaves through are wider. And then as the season goes on and the soil kind of gets drier, there's another layer of tissue that forms and the vascules are a bit smaller. So that forms the dark ring and then the light ring. And because it's kind of alternating between dark and light, if you, they kind of die every season. Right. And then makes the tree wider. Fascinating. Yeah. Last week when you said on the episode, tree rings, mm-hmm. but we didn't come up with a question for it. We just said, let's feature tree rings. I was racking my brains about what can I talk about tree rings? So I had the idea of writing a tree ring themed limerick. Why not? But then I didn't because oh, okay. I realized that would be too silly. Um, but while you were reading and talking about tree rings, otherwise known as dendrochronology, the science of tree rings, mm-hmm. I was learning about sclerochronology, which is a similar thing, but for like growth layers in seashells and other invertebrates. Ooh, cool. Yeah. And um, pretty much any hard tissue that grows via accretion, like in species other than trees, in mm-hmm. animals, I think, then that is, although I think like coral reef skeletons, I think that also falls under this. Mm-hmm. Like you can do the same thing. You can learn about some of the environmental conditions and obviously the history of that organism, like how old it is and stuff. So I thought that was a neat parallel. Yeah, that is really cool. It's kind of like soil layers, but yeah. in organisms. I mean, you can do it like in, like rock has it, right? They're like yeah. they look at sedimentary rock and the, the different layers, uh, soil layers, as you said, coal deposits, like... It's kind of cool how the Earth is its own black box. I know that's like a very elementary school feature that we just did, but (laughs) you know what? Sometimes we are a very elementary school podcast. Yeah, we just want to feature cool things about the planet to inspire. Speaking of featuring, Solacene recommends this week. Oh. I thought that we watched a short film called Ice Merchants. It's 14 minutes long. It's an animated short film that was just nominated for an Oscar. And we were thinking about doing a Solacene Oscar episode in Mm -hmm. March... I think we said we were going to do one last year. We didn't, but I really want to this year. This year. I think it'll be fun, and we like movies. We think that some movies very solo scene. Do you think this one was very solo scene or not? It was. It was yeah. one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> it was made by someone called Jao Gonzalez. He's Portuguese, but the film is silent. 
So it's it's a universal film, let me put mm-hmm. it like that. And it's on YouTube. I think it was on the New Yorker's YouTube channel or something strange like that. But we were remarking that the animation or the art style is very reminiscent of what we were aiming for <laughs> with our aforementioned nature zine. So, I mean, we kind of want like a credit on the film, but also <laughs> I feel like we'd be the ones more... Um, We're likely to get a copyright infringement. (laughs) Because, like, yeah, there's mountains in this movie, but then it cuts to this one scene that just is basically the cover cover, of the scene, and we were both like, (gasps) what? (laughs) (laughs) So I think we untapped some kind of universal imagery, symbology with the scene. (laughs) But yeah, it's a very very cute little film, so highly recommend Ice Merchants Mm -hmm. to everybody who has 14 minutes to spare. And our final question for today is about greenwashing. How do we stop greenwashing, Alicia? Three ways. People in the solo scene will grow a conscience. (laughs) But it's true. Imagine (laughs) the lack of conscience it takes to install a meter into a vehicle that skirts around the regulations to get your car a regulation certification that you can then sell to people, basically, like Volkswagen did. Imagine the lack of contents it takes to be IKEA to pay off the Forest Association to certify your beech wood that's being unsustainably sourced from Ukraine. Yeah. Gotta lack one. But in the Silicine, people will grow one. So that's step one. So corporations will grow one and the people in them, those mm-hmm. people. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I know corporations, it's like they're a big thing. People are this kind of a lowest common denominator ethically among all the people who make up the corporation but it still is made up of people let's give our just for the i mean people probably listening who listen to our podcast know but let's just give the 10 word definition of what is greenwashing 10 words or less greenwashing is when that's three okay (laughs) stop counting a company or government spends money on marketing or on some kind of development r&d to lime or deceive consumers of the overall environmental impact of their products i think it was 34 words okay so it's to either deceive them of the overall image or of just a specific product so like nature valley granola bears are a general mills product and general mills is now here trying to paint themselves as an overall green company they still sell cheerios and Fruit Loops and whatever. Right. Both Nature Valley, it's like, these are so sustainable, so good for you, so healthy, so beautiful. Yes. But it's in like the, they're not the actually. Yeah. So I think there's like there's different, there's the way that people probably usually think about it, which is an unsustainable company, let's say General Mills, um, feigning caring about the earth for mm-hmm. a new product because they know that will sell. Yeah. And there's maybe more, like even more devious um, way that you kind of mentioned with IKEA and Volkswagen, which is effectively corruption mm-hmm. or or like genuine um, illegal practices to obtain a certain certification, yeah, or, or circumvent regulations um, that are intended to enforce or promote sustainability. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of the consumer end side, like the like the Nature Valley maybe, and the more I don't know corporate end side systemic issue. Of the the badges. Yeah, I mean, there used a few years ago, the organic certification was honestly a good indicator of if something was sustainable or not. But now because there have been so much so many companies kind of trying to change 
what it means to be organic. It doesn't actually yeah. mean if something's sustainable anymore. It just is organic. Mm. Like it doesn't grow within right. whatever reach of roads and there's this much pesticides, but it doesn't actually mean anything anymore. And that kind of happens with a lot of the certifications. They're kind of watered down. And I don't know. Greenwashing is probably my biggest enemy. So in essence, companies do it or governments do it because it's a lot more profitable socially and fiscally mm -hmm. to feign sustainability than to actually strive for it. Yeah. That's, that's effectively it. So the two ways that I thought about stopping it, they're basically just rephrasing of what you said. One is educating buyers and two is reducing materialism. So it's yeah. like in terms of educating buyers, I think we should talk about this or consumers in the same way that we talk about educating voters. Mm -hmm. You know, for a, for a healthy democracy, we say we have to have an educated populace who knows about the issues, who knows about the candidates, the candidates' pasts, all the candidates and their platforms, and that way we can make a healthy choice. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that it should require hours of journalism for every purchase. Like that's something that I think the sustainability community gets wrong. Yeah. is when they think that the average person wants to or is willing to, or in the solo scene, like this should not be required that you have to spend three hours scouring different brands online to buy a t-shirt or something yeah. like that. But I think like some basic techniques, which a lot of us lack, or sometimes we kind of willfully put to rest, like seeing through marketing, mm -hmm. like seeing through those ads and saying, well, this is just how they want me to think. It's not actually like that. Mm -hmm. But really like, drilling it down in our heads because i feel like even if it's like yeah well we know that this granola brand isn't actually a local sustainable um old guy and his wife runs it type of brand but it kind of still works on us a little bit subconsciously yeah, I think so. so i think it, we have to take as active a role in combating that mm -hmm. maybe in the solo scene like things will just be more local anyway so there won't be so many different brands to scour through but i think also not letting corporations define what sustainability or progress is, is another big problem. Like yesterday we were walking around and there was this big like supermarket. Um, 18 wheeler. 18 wheeler, as you might yeah. say, who bringing all their loaves of bread or whatever. And it said on the, on the side of it was just a big statement about the company's commitment to sustainability and how they're reducing their carbon and everything. I was like, this is hilarious. But if you're not thinking so seen, you'd just be like, good for them. Yeah, but if exactly. you are thinking so soon, if you're thinking big enough, in other words, then you're like, this what is the? why this is ironic. Like this yeah. is silly. And I just think like forming our own opinions in general, that's mm -hmm. that's kind of the key to it. And that's what I mean by like educating mm -hmm. buyers. Yeah. I think in the solo scene, we won't have to just take companies' word for it. Like as you alluded mm -hmm. to, it will just hopefully be a bit more local. Like you just will know. So it's like if the company puts out this marketing campaign of like, like kind of I always think of Tim Hortons and they always used to say like baked fresh. And I was always like, there's no way that there's a team of people back yeah. there making donuts the thing is, or whatever. They're defining the word fresh. Yeah. So that's what I mean by not letting them define it for you. Yeah. And I think also a way to combat greenwashing is the way that in the early 2000s, there was a big push by lobbyists, the public and governments against deceptive marketing towards kids or like targeted marketing towards mm -hmm. kids when it comes to fast food and there were some unhealthy programming that was being marketed towards kids. So just like guidelines for advertising and big fines if you deceive them yeah. and also big fines for if you yeah, do that kind of second layer of greenwashing of circumventing 
regulations. That's just a whole other level of evil. So basically reducing corruption, mm-hmm. ensuring integrity, which is what you're saying about people being having a conscience. Yeah, exactly. And then the second thing, reducing materialism, we've spoken about this a bunch on the podcast, but it basically means people buy less. When I wrote this down, I put B-Y instead of B-U-Y. It was like mm-hmm. a real-life typo. It's kind of <laughs> strange because I associate that more with something you would do. But also so that people are happy buying less. Like That's another thing. Yeah. It's like it's not just that we kind of feel guilty about buying. It's that you just don't want to buy that extra T-shirt. Because mm-hmm. I feel like right now, this happens to me, you maybe know about the company's um, environmental impacts or social impacts. You're like, well, Nike, that's not a great company. Mm-hmm. But you really like the clothes or you really like the logo so it's like but if i just buy this one thing take care of it yeah take care of it then, then we kind of um we it's because we have a materialism like we want to justify our um consumerism is another word for it, like our affixation to the things because the things make you feel nicer and it's retail therapy mm-hmm. and they they help form your persona so obviously breaking all that down is is good like being able to make a t-shirt yourself yeah or Food is also a big thing that's like easier to just make your own juice than buying it in the plastic bottle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sharing, trading, borrowing, having kind of public libraries of materials that you could use yeah. to try things out. We talked about that a lot. Yeah. Um, there's a third part of greenwashing, which I don't think is exactly greenwashing, but it's products that don't need to exist at all existing in the name of sustainability. Like we recently mm-hmm. had a gift store and we were like, this is hilarious because everything's marketed with like on the box it says sustainably packaged like sustainably mm-hmm. made and it's like how about just don't make it at all yeah so uh i think you had the idea that we're going to do a, an episode about that where we do like parodies <laughs> of such products right yeah like, like the, the banana case or whatever but we're gonna <laughs> yeah so like silly ones like that mm-hmm. might be a little bit too mean-spirited but we could return to it at some point in the future a lot of a lot of teasers for future episodes on today's yeah so we seen been talking about it a lot that reminds me i bought something yesterday like cookies because i'm gluten-free so i was like i just want to buy some cookies and it was all over the package it was like less packaging then i opened it up and all the cookies were individually packaged Mm. and i've just never seen something so crazy before because usually i'm i try to be as like mindful as possible i was like oh cool like it is sustainably packaged it was a brand i'd never tried then you had to open them up and it was like then i started reading the whole box and all the fine print was like the plastic's biodegradable which is basically a big ol why like something can be biodegradable but it's still not actually good to throw into a landfill or throw into a compost pile and there were two other like greenwashing campaigns that i wanted to highlight because there's a lot of the common ones that people just like know it's like everyone knows the h&m conscious brand is just bs like it's not actually sustainable or anything alicia swears on the podcast but there were two two other funny things one was that keurig did a whole marketing campaign about how you can recycle their K-cups now. So basically you take off the lid, you dump out the coffee grounds into the compost, and then you throw the... Why do those things exist anyway? Exactly. <laughs> so it's like right off the bat, it's just nonsense. But then it turns out in Canada, only Quebec and BC were actually recycling the ponds. Everywhere else was just like, what's this? And would throw it in the garbage. Ah. So people thought they were recycling, they were doing the work, but then it wasn't even getting recycled. The other thing is that the brand Innocent Drinks which is this brand that I'm pretty sure they like use food waste to make the juices or whatever. And I always thought it was an independent brand because that's kind of how it popped up. The marketing and the logo were all very unique, like to it seemed like it was indie mm-hmm. or a bit more indie drinks. You, 
know, like it'd be like some kombucha brands. It's like you know that they're actually made in your province. Or okay. In... Anyway, Innocent Drinks is just owned by Coca-Cola, which is the biggest plastic polluter in the world. Yeah. And it's like, let's not. Are we ever going to be owned by Coca-Cola? <laughs> Absolutely not. Would you rather be owned by Coca-Cola or Pepsi? Ooh, that's the real question. Neither. Okay, Pepsi too sweet, so. (laughs) I was thinking that as we start each episode with a poem, we could think of something to conclude each one. Because often when I'm editing, I'm like, how many seconds should I leave after this? Mm. Should we end with just say bye? Or sometimes, like last week, I think you were just laughing. So we should have something like a sign-off. And (laughs) I was thinking, perhaps if you want to whistle a tune for us. (laughs) I really want us to have a solo scene theme tune. And you're a great whistler. People need to know. Actually, it might not sound good in their ears. It's going to sound bad. Maybe in the future we could have some kind of an assignment. Mm, for next week. Yeah. Can you bring out the ukulele again? Do a few little no, notes? No, I'm not talking about <laughs> tunes. I'm talking about an assignment for the, the listeners. Oh, an assignment? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I guess we could the do that. The solo scene recommends. The thing like, is, we could leave solo scene recommends at the end. Yeah. But the thing is with the assignment, it just seems so like corporate no not corporate it just seems like i'm telling them what to do and i don't like that it's like hey you guys hey you research this okay we'll figure out something it's not going to be musical people can contact us so if they want (laughs) here's the the two choices music or questions homework i think i know they'll choose okay let us know 